Well, good afternoon. Yeah, just to go off of what Ben had said about all of chapter 4, um, I had sent my notes to Brother Renee uh, just for, you know, to make sure I was doctrinally sound. And, uh, of course, he always responds back with some good information, and he says, but one thing he did say, he says, looks like you got an awful lot of notes to go through in, uh, in one time. I said, well, I said, I'll, uh, he said, he said, you know, maybe you could look for some opportunities to paraphrase. So I said, that's probably a good idea. We'll get you all out of here. Um, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this night, Father. God, I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray, Father, that the words that come forth from this pulpit, God, would be yours. God, that they would change lives because of who you are, Father. And God, that we leave here differently than the way we came in. And in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, so chapter 4, finishing up Timothy. Just give you a little information. Of course, this is the, um, the very end of, of Paul's life. Uh, he's, he's in prison at this time. And as we go through, we'll kind of see some key words in there that let us know that. But he's, uh, his execution is near, and he knows it. Um, and I just think it's very interesting how, in essentially his, the, the last days of his life, um, kind of what he touches on and what he hits on. And uh, he's got some, some very interesting parts here. So we're going to kind of break this up into three sections, um, verses 1 through 8 are going to be the first part, and then 9 through 21, we'll kind of we'll, we'll go through a little quicker. But the, and in, in the last verse. So I want to just go ahead and read those first, the first section of verse from 1 through 6 here. Excuse me, 1 through... Yeah, let's do that. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. For I have already been poured out as a drink offering, and at the time of my departure has come. And 7 and 8 actually says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a lot of stuff going on there, some real powerful words, and I like the first part that he says, right when he gets into verse 2, he says, preach the word. You know, when we look at the, what that means um, in the Greek, for example, we preach, the Greek word for it is keruso. Um, that's not your Aunt Russo that lives down the street. That's Greek, and it means to proclaim or to herald something. And then he says the word, which also we know as lagos. It's something said, but not only something said, it's including the thought or the intention that came along with that. And we believe that and that's, that's God's word. What we have here is the very word of God. The thought, the intention, and the word all in one. So he says, preach the word. That's the first commandment he gives. Preach the word. So our first point here is we need to preach the word faithfully. Preach the word faithfully. And when he's saying faithfully, what he's saying is it's not just so much as simple as just preaching or just talking about it, but it's preaching the entire truth of the word of God. Not just parts and pieces, but the entire part that we have a full knowledge of what's going on. Second Timothy 3.16, as we saw in the last chapter, says all scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice right there, all scripture. And then in Acts 20, 27, he says, for, and he's talking to the Ephesian elders right here, and he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So the point he's trying to get across there is we need to preach the word faithfully to its fullest extent. Don't go ahead and look for things that you can do in and out of there, but the whole truth. You know, in Colossians, he talks about that we would pre- present each other mature in Christ with a full understanding and knowledge of God's word. And that full understanding is who Christ is, and the message of Christ was Christ and him crucified. And that's what he's trying to get apart to him, that we need to preach the word faithfully. He's speaking to Titus here in his last days, preach the word faithfully. Second point he says, I see what he says is we need to preach the word consistently. It says be ready in season and out of season. How many people have heard that before? Be ready in season and out of season, right? Um, it's, a, it's a common thing we hear in the church, and I, I thought it was interesting to see kind of how that broke down. Um, so I looked at kind of the three parts of that, ready, in season, and out of season. When we look at the word ready, it comes from the Greek word aphistome, which means to stand upon, to be present, and in some situations to assault or to be forceful in that. So he's saying right there to be ready, to stand upon it, to be, to be in a position of, of being alert and being available. And then it says in season, which means eukiros, which is when the opportunity occurs. Um, we also have heard that saying when it's convenient, you know, when it's a time that you, um, you may think that it's going to happen. And then out of season is, is akiros, which is the inopportune time, when it's inconvenient, you know, whenever you least expect that what's, what's going to take place there. And where is there's a picture of a soldier, a soldier that's always ready, ready always ready for battle. You know, you, you can, might be at the camp as a soldier. You know, you may be resting, eating, whatever it is, but are you ready if the enemy was to attack? And that's the picture he's trying to print, picture for us here because... If we look at back in Ephesians 6 where he talks about the whole armor of God, over and over time it's the word stand is mentioned there, right? We stand firm, we stand here, we stand there. And that word comes from the Greek word histeme, which means just that, a firm placement and to be established. And that goes back to what ready is ephistome, which is a, is a part of that root word. So it's that same idea that he's pitching for us. We've got to be like a soldier, We've got to be in a place where we're ready at any time to be able to do what? To preach the word faithfully. To be able to preach words God without any kind of conviction for it, but out there in its full entirety. You know, I think about, when I, anytime I hear the word season, I think about hunting season. Um, it's just where I go, right? And, you know, I think about that so many times. You know, when hunting season's over, you know, it's like, you know, by that point you're, Ready, you're either done, you're frustrated, maybe it was a great season, maybe it wasn't, but guess what? What do you do with everything you had? In most cases, on the shelf, right? You pack up your clothes, give your gun a good clean, pick, you know, wax your bowstring, whatever's involved, you get everything picked up, and you're like, you know what? I'm gonna do it different this year, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that thing out next weekend, I'm gonna keep practicing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be ready for next season, I'm gonna get my stands all ready and clean, and, you know, my deer feeder is still in the woods. How long, ago was, how long ago was the deer season? I think I probably ought to just go put some corn in there and just get them used to it for the next six months rather than even take it out. But I think about that so many times. We just, being ready out of season is not normal for us because, we, because in those situations we take a step back, we tend to relax, we tend to let our guard down, 
And, you know, we look at it at a time of just taking it easy, you know, in some situations. But what Paul said right here is, don't, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Be ready at all times, in season and out of season, because of the importance of it. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks, for, asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the key word I see right there, it says, for that reason, that that hope is in you. And I think so many times we're intimidated by the fact of what if somebody asks me something? What if somebody wants to know something about my faith? What if somebody asks me something about the Bible that I don't understand? But what's the one thing that we all have as believers that we can draw on very quickly and very easily? That hope that's in us in our salvation, Right? And that's ultimately where it happens, guys. That's, that, that's the very same thing that happened to you, is that hope that Christ came when grace came into your life. And it says right there that yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, so many times either we get, that, we get a little bit more zeal than wisdom uh, sometimes. And we forget the fact that this is not a work of our own. This is a work that Christ did in our life. You know, so it's in that moment, just draw upon the very hope that you have in Christ alone. God's word, remember, it always has good timing and never has bad timing. You know, you can't particularly say the wrong scripture. You could say the scripture wrong, but scripture in and of itself is always good. It's always good. The next part uh, we want to look at is preaching the word pastorally. And he breaks that up into three parts here in the, in the verse. He says to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. How many times have we heard that? It's pretty common lingo in the Bible to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. And what I think is important that we see here is, you know, when Paul's speaking to Timothy, he's talking about the church. He's talking about us as believers and how we need to be dealt with because he knows that a church a body, a person that's not centered on Christ, is going to tend to just very often to different directions if they're not brought back to center. And this process of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting is what does that for us as the body of believers. To reprove means to correct false doctrine or behavior by sound biblical doctrine. So you correct it by what? By good ideas? No, we correct it by sound biblical doctrine that's based on God's word. The lagos, God's word. And then he talks about rebuking. You know, we don't usually, that tends to have a negative connotation but the reality is, as, as believers, it's a necessary part of the process in which we look to restore people inside the church in any, in any area of their life. It says correcting a person's motives by conviction of sin. And the goal is to lead them to repentance, but letting, leading them through biblical instruction. Once again, the importance is that it's all based on biblical doctrine and biblical instruction. And then he says to exhort. So when we come alongside, come alongside them, we, we strengthen them, we teach with them, we want to help them learn, and we want to bring them through this process, uh, what ultimately ends up being uh, discipleship. So he tells us right there, we need to preach the word pastorally. We need to preach it pastorally, where we constantly are bringing people back to the center of who Christ is and the change that he's done in your life and in their life. Now, these areas all end up working hand-in-hand. Hand. You know, I mean, there may, be, there may be some situations where you're involved in the 
process of reproving someone and somebody else comes alongside you and joins in and helps out in this process. But they all work hand in hand. And the idea is that the church is strengthened by the word of God, that the baseline that that works off of is the word of God. And last part of, uh, excuse me, next part of uh, verse four point here is to preach the word patiently. Who here has got patience figured out? Because you can, I'll get you to come up here, we'll give you an example. Nick said he does. We need to preach the word patiently. You know, patiently is over a long, not just in that moment, but over a long period of time and long suffering. You know, I can be patient for a short period of time. But ask someone to be patient over a long period of time with something that really bothers them. And that's what the church was dealing with in a lot of ways. They were, you know, they would see this chaos and they would see issues going on and, but there's no instant fix, you know, but he's saying to, we need to preach the word patiently. Psalms 145, eight says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, he's the perfect example of patience and what that looks like. I mean, look at our own lives, the patience that he has with us throughout our lives. Some of us, you know, come to know Christ early in life. Some of us, you know, on our deathbed. But through that entire course of your life, just the patience that he has with us. And then even as a believer, the patience that he has with us. As he brings us through this process of sanctification, ultimately unto glorification. The idea that he walks alongside of us. And that same picture is there for us, that as we deal with people in our lives, that we preach the word patiently to them. You know, we live in a world that's very um, instant, right? Kind of this drive-through mentality. I didn't make this up, and um, I, I was reading something the other day. They said that the Christian church has kind of become this Christian mentality, you know, where, like McDonald's, everything's quick, everything's cheap, you know, and that's what so many times in the Christian church we're looking for. And why? Why, do, why are we looking for that? For one, patience. We, we, don't, we don't do well with it, especially in America. But we've, we've gotten to this place where it's about us. And we forget that the gospel is about Christ and Christ alone. So he's saying, be patient. Take a step back. Preach it and with complete patience. And the next part, preach the word theologically. And the last part of that verse, of, of verse 2, he says, and teaching with complete patience and teaching. He starts off with preaching the word, and he ends this section with teaching the word. And there, and there is a difference, although, and, and, and they have equal importance, but the idea is of preaching is there's just this continual proclaiming of God's word in every situation, proclaiming and going forth. But when he speaks about now to bringing it to the idea of teaching, that gets into a little bit more intimate situation where you sit down, you get into God's Word, and you, and along with other believers, you study Scripture in a very detailed way, looking for all the nuances and the truths that He has in there for us. Because it's all there. But we've got to have an element of teaching as we go through this. And we need to desire the whole knowledge of God's Word, not just Scriptures that suit us. You know, I can remember for so many years of my life, it was, there were certain things you picked out of there, and it was worked good for you. And then there's the other area that you're like, yeah, you know, that's probably for, that's probably for somebody else, or I don't quite think that lines up with this, and it doesn't really match. But the reality is, guys, like Second Timothy three sixteen says, all scripture, all scripture. That's the key word, the key two words. There's all scripture. If it doesn't make sense to you, 
or if it doesn't, if you don't think it applies to you, um, I would encourage you to study deeper. I would encourage you to study further and realize that God's word and his knowledge, his full understanding of what he talks about is in every nook and cranny and nuance of scripture. I think it's important that we see scripture in that way. I think about the verse in Matthew 5.18 where it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, I've read that for years. I mean, I've heard people say things like, uh, you're not going to get an iota. You know, it's kind of one of a catchphrase. And I never really understood what it even meant. And then when I started looking into this a little further, listened to some teaching on it, what, I, what, I, what really jumped out on me is, first of all, what is an iota? You know, in that language, it's just a very small mark, just a dash, a stroke of the pen, essentially. And what that tells me is the whole truth of God's word is so important. So all down to the point that he's saying that the iota is, not, is going to come to pass before anything happens. I mean, it's just that important, guys, that we need to see Scripture as sovereign. We need to see that it is the very Word of God. And part of that process is of being theological as we speak. You know, you might not be a theologian, but we can all be theological in our understanding of Scripture and how from cover to cover, God's got a picture there for us of Christ from start to finish. And it's how it all works together and it all ties together. You know, we need to look at it from what can the gospel, not what the gospel can do for me, you know, but what has, what has Christ done for me or what has Christ done for you? Because think about that so many times. We do that. We, we, we look for areas of scripture to suit the area where we are in life, to suit the situation that we're in. Um, and I'm not saying that doesn't always apply, but unfortunately I think sometimes our motives are incorrect. And we, we look for it for the opportunity to uh, pacify our situation in some ways. But God's word is truth, and it's meant to, it's meant to let us be honest with ourselves and, and see the situations that we have going on. With no, you know, I think about this too, when you, do, when you don't have a theological understanding of God's word, you don't end up having this moral absolute or this, uh, this anchor point in your life. And then what ends up happening when we don't? I mean, think about a boat. If the anchor doesn't hold, what does it do? It floats around. It goes all kinds of different places. But when that anchor's set and when that anchor's steady, what happens? It's steady, and it stays there. And that's what God's Word's intention is. That's what God's Word is for us in our lives. Because if not, we get all kinds of crazy doctrines. I mean, think about all through your life things in the church that people have done just because it was a good idea, they felt some inkling that it was the right thing to do. But did it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with Scripture? I think about our society today um, and all of the things that go on there, and it's just, it's just, they're just making it up as they go. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't have, it doesn't, making sense is relative to the person that's saying it. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to have, it doesn't have to be sound or biblically based. If you can come up with a good enough argument on why it is, they can put it into law for you. You know? And guys, that is the world. And that's to be expected of the world. But we are the church, and we are to be different. Because we do have an anchor point in God's word. And it has to be taken seriously. In, in Jeremiah 5.31, he's speaking to Jerusalem here. He says, the prophets, false, prof, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own authority. My people love it like this. You know? And it's so true. 
because it suits where it, it suits them. They they like it. It's it's pal it's palatable. It's easy. It's not it's not a heavy burden for them. Because as he goes on from this from verse two right here, that's what he says. He says, "For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." You know, how true is it? I mean, even inside the church, how many times we just you know, we see it, people just bounce around looking for the person that's going to pacify their situation, It's going to tell them something that doesn't offend them. You know, I'm not talking about something that's undoctrinal, okay? I'm talking about emotions and feelings because they're there and they're real and we all have them um, and they usually um, cause us problems. We have to anchor on God's word. He's talking to the Ephesian church in 4.14. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And then Colossians 1.28 says, It's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We've got to be careful for the itching ears, you know, for that idea of looking for things that just meet us where we want to be. And desire something that's just pleasant to hear. You know, sometimes when we hear the word of God, it, it, it may be painful. It may be a situation where it's like, man, I was not wanting to deal with that. But God's word is good because from that situation, we are taught something. You know, through that process, there's healing that takes place. And we move on from that process in this process that we call sanctification closer and closer to Christ. It's essential. You know, we don't see pain the same way God does. And it's because of that very reason we don't like to deal with things most times that are painful. But I love what Paul says that he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We need to focus on consistent godly relationships. And I think it's, you know, we talk about theological being theological and preaching the word theologically you know i think for what a great opportunity we have in this church with life groups you know where we have an opportunity to come together as a small group of believers whether we be doing an active study whether we be doing some other bible study but it's in those moments that you've got people from all walks of life all different types of backgrounds all believers in christ in most situations that have a desire to live for him and it's amazing to see how God's word touches people in different areas of their life at different times um, just because of where they are, because they have allowed that to move into their life. And you get the opportunity to be on both sides. You get the side to be a mentor in some situations. In other situations, you get to be mentored because of the people in your group. And that's the beauty of what God has for us in the church, that we, we walk with one another through this. And we use everything as his word of God as that anchor point. And then he transitions here, and he says, verse 4, And I will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. But he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I like how he makes that transition there, and he says, As for you, as for you, Timothy, as for you, here's some things that you're going to need to do. If you want to be able to walk this out, what I just spoke about in the previous verses, this is, what I, this, is, this is your call to faithfulness right here. He says, the first thing he says is to be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. I love um, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 as a, 
as a men's ministry leader and as a man, because it says, be alert, stand firm in the faith and act like a man and be strong. But the first part of the verse is be alert. Guys, we can't be alert if we're not of sober mind. It's impossible. You know, and we always think of uh, soberness and, you know, what we believe in with, you know, the effect of alcohol or other stimulants in our life. But it's not just those areas. We can also be in a place where we're just kind of numb. It goes back to being ready in season and out of season. That there's a situation that we're always alert and we're always ready. You know how many times does Paul say in the scripture that I, he says in Colossians 2, I toil and I struggle unto the point of exhaustion. Well, that's not just laying around that, that puts out that kind of emotion. That's being ready. And that's, that's looking for opportunity to bring God's word forth over and over again. You know, and I look at, you know, the fact of being alert and for, you know, for me as a dad, you know, the thing I take from that too is just being in a place where I have security and provide security for my family. Not only physically, no, but even more importantly, spiritually. You know, each day my kids see that me and my wife put God first. That they see that God's word and worship is important. That prayer means something, you know. I think so many, I was convicted of this. Years back, you know, so many times we get a, a text message, um, we get some sort of uh, notice or whatever. That somebody's gone through something and they need prayer. Well, we always respond back, praying for you. Sure will, will do, so forth and so on. But I found myself in a situation, I'd send that text and I would walk off and go about my rest of my life. You know, and, it, you know, that, as far as that other person was concerned, they got their prayer. But I knew that I didn't. You know, and I, was, and I was convicted by that because I did it one time in front of the, the boys, and I just, you know, we made it, I mentioned it, and I walked off, and I said, what have I just shown them? What have I just shown them in that moment? You know, so now we make an attention to that, that we stop what we're doing, and we pray. And then we go on, because it does two things. One, we said we were going to do it, okay? And then it teaches our children, just like when it goes back into, it talks about it in Proverbs, where we we, we promote this idea of them having a desire for God's word and for desiring godliness and holiness. And it's not just with our children, guys. This is in our workplace. This is with our friends. This is in every area of our life. And that's where the key of discipleship and all this comes together, being anchored in God's word. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What just an amazing picture there of why we need to be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary is there, ready to attack and ready to pounce. You know, it goes back, it goes back to the word of histamate, to stand, to be ready, and face it head on. You know, are we in that position? Then he says, endure suffering. He says, endure suffering. You know, I think about... You know, we talked about suffering a while ago, but I think about in the sense of, of battle that, you know, when you're in a fight at any level, it's not a clean process, you know. I can remember in school growing up and whenever there was a fight in the schoolyard, it was, it was intense, you know. I mean, it was, there was things flying, there was screaming, there was chanting from every area, but it was nasty. It was messy. And guys, that's where we are. We're in a fight with the adversary. But the idea is the difference is between the schoolyard fight, we win every time. I wasn't in any schoolyard fights. But we win, guys. We win. 
2 Timothy 2.3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And earlier we Philippians 1.21, For to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this idea of suffering in our life, and I'm not saying heap on the suffering to make yourself get a box checked off, but the idea is, guys, we're, it's going to happen. You know, we don't see it in America like other places in the world do. You know, we don't even really have a, a clue in most situations. But I just think about any time that you deal with some level of hardship, you know, we are to be toiling and exhausting ourselves for the gospel. You know, I deal with, I always deal with how many hours of sleep I got to get a night, you know. You know, there's like this seven-hour rule for me, right? If I don't get seven hours of sleep, you know, then I'm tired. You know, I got to thinking about that. And I'm like, what, what is tired? You know, really? What is tired? Inconvenience? Really? I mean, I'm, you know, if you're at the point where you can't function, that's a different story. We are required to have a certain amount of sleep. But, you know, if you don't get your seven or eight hours, you're going to be okay. You will be okay. You know, especially if it comes at the cost of not being able to advance the gospel. You know, put into perspective what is truly important in that situation. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. You know, when we think about evangelists, you know, we think about televangelists. You know, we think about the guys that are in the French Quarter, you know, standing on top of the paper box. You know, the people that are on a soapbox. I actually seen somebody on a soapbox once. I thought I didn't realize that was a thing. But he was in a soapbox, right? In there, and he was just going to town, man. And he was just in, you know, it was an appearance of evangelism. But here's the deal. This is not what Paul's specifically telling Timothy here. What he's calling him to is the office of, being, of, of evangelism, which is what we are all responsible for as believers in Christ. Yes, there will be preachers and there will be teachers and there will be evangelists in the church. But what he's speaking out here is to do the work of an evangelist, to be in a place where we're constantly looking for opportunities to spread the word of God. I love in Acts 17, 17 through 18, um, this is when Paul and Silas here, and he says, he says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others says, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You know, here he is evangelizing to these people about what? The complicated understanding of the Sermon on the Mount? No. Jesus and the resurrection. What was he preaching? Jesus and the resurrection. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says, And then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It goes for all types. We were to evangelize to religious people, to um, philosophers, to Stoics, to intellects. You know, there is no limit on where evangelism can take place. And he's saying to do the work of evangelism. Don't let that go. And then he says, fulfill your ministry. And we know Titus was called to the ministry of being a, a pastor and, of, and developing the churches. But he's saying, fulfill that ministry in your life. And, you know, for each one of us, that's different. You know, some of us, some of us may be pastors and teachers, evangelists. You know, but we're all brothers and sisters in Christ in the same token. You know, for, for those of you that are married, that is, prob- that is the most important ministry in your life. 
You know, and I think so many times we take that for granted. You know, we, we think we gotta do something else. And I'm not saying that those other things shouldn't happen. But if it comes at the expense of your first ministry and your marriage, there's a problem. Because it's in that, it's in that right there, that's the very picture of Christ and His church that takes place. Fulfill your ministry. Find out where your place is. You know, learn how to be a servant. Right? That's not something that comes naturally for us. But it's in that place when we begin to serve at any capacity, in any relationship we're in, God begins to move in that. And you begin to see your talents and the things that you're good at, your giftings, and not only that, the people around you see, and you're able to see where God's bringing you in your ministry. You know, what is that going to look like for you? Be a servant. And then verses 6 through 8, he says, He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And here he's alluding to the idea that his, his crucif- not his, he wasn't crucified because he was from Rome, but he was executed. But he's, he's alluding to the fact that this time is coming. I've, been, I've poured out myself here. This has it's taken place. He said, And the time of the departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. So here we see Paul's faithfulness to Christ. And I see how he, I, and from what I see here, he breaks it down into three areas, the present, the past, and then the future. In verse 6 in the present, he talks about, you know, he's, he's sitting there in jail, and he's, and he's poured out. His life for Christ. He says it right there. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. And then he looks, you know, and I see him look into his past and he says how he's fought the good fight. You know, he's, he's synonymous with the, the picture of a soldier. He's finished a race. He gives us that picture of the athlete that he talks about in the other ones. And then he's kept the faith. And the faith that he's kept is the message of the cross that it's Christ and him crucified. And he's going back to what he told Timothy in the beginning, to use God's word as an anchor point in his life to hold in sound doctrine. He says, I've kept the faith. And then he's completed his call. And because of it, he's got lasting results. You know, that's part of the deal, guys. When we finish the race, you know, the results that come from that have lasting effect because of the people that we've touched and the people that we've met through that process. And that's, the re- and, the, and that's the result of it. You know, finishing is really what's important. You know, I think about the New Orleans Saints a few years back, and that was, that was their motto, finish strong. You know, they was on, you could get the shirts with and everything. And the reason why is because the previous years, they would start off well, they'd start off a game well, they'd start off a season well, and they would tank at the end of the game. They couldn't close out games. They couldn't close out seasons. They couldn't do anything. Um, and they adopted this motto of finishing strong. And it worked for him, right, for one year, arguably two. But the idea is, the idea is, even the world sees the importance of finishing strong. You know, if you ever go to a race or a a 5K or any level of race, what do you always see people do the last 10 feet? They sprint, right? Some people that do it while they go a little further back than 10 feet. I'm more of a 10 feet sprinter. It's more of kind of like a falling over the line. But the idea is even, even in that realm, we want to finish strong. You know, we don't want to flop across the line. 
Now, we want to finish strong, and that's, and that's what Christ has called us. That we fight, we fight, we fight to the very end. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 through 27 says, Therefore I run this, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And what he's saying is here is that we have to discipline ourselves in our walk with Christ. That there are going to be times where it's tired and we don't want to go any further and we don't want to do it and we don't want to meet this situation and I hope that guy doesn't come talk to me because I don't want to hear his problems he's got today. But we are to discipline ourselves in that moment. And remember what Christ did for us. Remember what Christ did for us in our life. And then he says, henceforth. And for those of you who have never looked up the word henceforth, it means from this point on. From this point on, which also tells us he's in his last days. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me that crown of righteousness. He's eluding again once to his death, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. You know, we all long for that day as believers when we get that crown of righteousness. It's this picture of uh, this, uh, as an athlete would get this crown on them when they would, when they would finish a race, when they would win. It was an understanding of victory in that situation. And for us, we believe that to be eternal life. And for us, for us now as believers, until we get to that point, it is the very hope that we have to go on day after day after day. You know, because how many times in your life or before you knew Christ, what was your hope? The next thing you were going to buy, the next person you were going to see, the next thing you were going to eat, the next place you were going to go. And when, there, and when there wasn't one of those things to allude to, what happened? There's this sense of emptiness. There's this sense of I don't know what to do. But guess what? As believers, we have a hope that's always there. And we still do get excited about those things, but it's not what carries us on from day to day. That hope of Christ in our lives. And then he goes through this, he goes through his next verses here, 9 through 21, and I'm, I'm not going to read all of them because um, it's just... Uh, it's kind of wordy, but the idea is he's, he starts going through a list of all the different people in his life. He's got somebody, somebody's bringing him this. He's got somebody bringing him a coat, telling somebody not to forget his parchments. He's letting you know, watch out for this guy, the coppersmith. He did me wrong. God's probably going to take care of him for that. You know, and he goes through, and he goes everything from naming people that have had, that have been instrumental in his life. You know, he's like, you know, bring this guy back. He's been useful to me in ministry and that guy's busy over there. And he goes through this whole list. And I just found it very interesting that as he's, as he's finishing up, he goes through this process of, of naming, you know, 10, 11, 12 different people. You know? And I think about for us, just, it's just such a picture in our own lives of how many people we deal with on a daily basis. How many people we have the opportunity to affect. How many people have the opportunity to affect us. You know? And... Don't take that lightly. Don't take that as just a, a mere um, thing that just happens. You know, it's happenstance. No. I think as believers, we are to be intentional with every relationship in our life. You know, how many times have we walked by and somebody says, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great. Right? And you got fired earlier. You know? Guys, as believers, look for the opportunities to pour into one another's life. Look for the opportunities to speak life into one another's life. Look for the opportunities to make sure that they're anchored in God's word, in their beliefs. Build up the people around you, presenting everyone mature in Christ. 
And ultimately, that leads to what we call, you know, I, I call my legacy. You know, look at when, you, when the day goes that we move on with the Lord, what kind of legacy have we left behind us? You know, I was, I was speaking to Rachel uh, last night when we were, we were kind of chatting about this. And um, the boys were, you know, they're getting to an age now where they kind of ask me questions about when I was younger. And, you know, they can actually understand it now. So, we, you know, we tell stories and so forth. And um, we, we were talking about how, you know, they, they, how did I, I came from the Catholic faith. And they want to know what that meant. And, you, you know, so we went through it, at, you know, on a very basic level. You know, and my, and my wife said, you know, Matt, she said, when I think about the decision that your dad made, you know, 37, 38 years ago to walk with Christ, what that has done as an impact in, in our family at the very basic level, all of my siblings serving God, you know, and just how key it is for when one man, when one person makes a decision for Christ and walks that out. And it takes discipline, you know, to go through a life to be able to say at some point, you know, I've, you know, some of us will be able to say that we've been serving God for 70, 80 years at some point. And what faithfulness it is, and it's not because of anything we've done, guys. It's because of what Christ did in us. And he closes out his, his book just as he does in all of his epistles. In verse 22, he says, May the Lord be with your spirit. The grace be with you. I just think that's such a powerful scripture, and he does it in all of them. You know, back in First Timothy, he does it. He does the same thing. He does it in Titus, um, as you go through all of them. And it's just, and I thought, you know, there's there's more there's more to that. What's going on there? But what I also notice is he starts off all of his with grace to you. He says grace to you right there, grace to you. You know, by reading the letter, you know, it's, it's a picture that God's word is primary and foundational. What he's about to tell you is going to be God's word. It's coming at you, and it's grace to you. Okay, and I'm about to give this to you. I'm going to package it up for you, however long this process takes, and it's coming at you. But then he closes out that that grace be with you. So he changes it. It goes from coming to you to now being with you. And it's a picture of us as believers. It's a picture for them as the church now, everything that I've just, that everything that Paul's just said and everything that he's just instructed the church on, everything he's given Timothy right here, it doesn't stop here. Now it goes with you. That grace of Christ goes with you. All believers require the grace of God to preserve the truth and pass it on to the next generation. You know, if we want to be effective in the church, if we want to be effective in discipleship, guys, we've got to pass it along. You, you, you can't just hold it to yourself. The idea is that we present each other mature in Christ to the full understanding and knowledge of who he is. That grace goes with us. When we walk out of this service, that grace goes with us. When we go into work tomorrow, that grace is with us. And the opportunity is there for us at every moment for, to have boldness to preach that and to bring everyone around you closer to Christ and bring them up with you. Never, never, never minimize the grace that Christ has for you in your life and the power that it has to change lives around you and to change your life just as it did. Never, ever take for granted the Word of God. And always, always anchor yourself in God's Word and His doctrine. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this night, and I thank you for this opportunity, God. And I pray, Father, that...
We leave here, Father, with your word heavy on our hearts. God, that it's, God, that it's cutting through areas God, that we need to deal with. God, that it allows us to be honest. And God, that ultimately, at the end of the day, it puts us in a place, God, where we can glorify you. That where we see you as holy and as sovereign. And the things in our lives that don't make sense and don't just seem to come together, it does not change who you are, Father. God, you are still our God. You are still our Savior. And in Jesus' mighty name, amen. You are dismissed.